Today's episode is part of something that has fired me up for months. Human and Holy's extended series on Tvila. Human and Holy is running a Tvila series where we are doing a deep dive into all the elements of prayer, talking to God, opening the sitter, all the things we love about it, all the things we struggle with. Alongside this series, Human and Holy is launching a resource center. We wanted to deepen the impact of the series and give you access to gorgeous, meaningful items that you can interact with to bring your personal tefila to life. Over the last couple of months, we have created and curated a shoppable tefila collection that takes the ideas we are discussing in this series out of your mind and into your hands to give you tools to deepen your own personal relationship with prayer. The Tefillah Collection launches on Mote Shabbos, February 25th on humanandholy.com. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be telling you more about each item, but for now, mark your calendar. Just trust me. Hello, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. This episode is part of Human and Holy's extended series on Tvila. This Tvila series is sponsored by RBCA, which is a high school for Lubavitch girls to thrive and discover their inner potential and connection to Torah and Hasidus. RBCA's task is to bring out the best in each student with individualized attention, a vibrant Hasidic atmosphere, meaningful and exciting extracurricular programming, and learning that's relevant and thought-provoking. Thank you, RBCA, for making our Tvila series happen. Tvila is a topic with many layers. We have the sitter, which to some feels like a burden, and to others, the greatest gift. We have the spontaneous prayer to God, the ongoing conversation, the dialogue that can happen at any moment of our day. How do we bridge the two? For many people, the sitter feels stale. For others, having a spontaneous conversation with God just doesn't feel natural. In today's episode, we are going to explore where those two intersect with a debitter. A debitter teaches Talmud and Halacha at various institutions of women's learning in Jerusalem, including Minot Women's Seminary, which you may have heard of. She is also a Yoetzet Halacha who guides women in all matters of Taras Mishpacha. Adi received her BA from Columbia University in Middle East and Asian Languages and Cultures, and her MA from Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Graduate School in Modern Jewish History. She is also a graduate of Yeshiva University's Graduate Program for Advanced Talmudic Studies and of Nishmat's Karen Ariel Program for Yoatzot Halacha. Originally from New York, Adi lives in Jerusalem with her husband and children. Adi is well-versed in the halachic background of formal tefillah, 
and she is brimming with love for this topic. I came away from this conversation feeling uplifted, energized, and with a completely new appreciation for what the sitter could offer in my life and in my relationship with Hashem. Today, we're going to discuss what is a woman's halachic obligation to the words of the sitter? What is the meaning behind some of the central tefillahs? And even when we aren't halachically required to pray, how can we cultivate a sense of desire to open up the sitter? What can the words of the sitter uniquely offer us in our relationship with Hashem? My name is Edzi Bitter, and I live in Jerusalem. I'm originally from New York, and we made Aliyah 16 years ago. live here, thank God, with my husband. Opportunity to teach Torah to women at different phases and stages of life. And I teach mostly Gemara and Halacha. And I also work as a Yotzer Halacha, helping women keep the laws of Torah to Mishpacha and addressing their questions that come up connected to women's health and fertility that intersect with different areas of Halacha. Nice. Okay, cool. I'm so grateful that we have you here today. True expert in your field and also just a special person to talk about tefillah, the halachic historical background to tefillah, how the sitter came to be, et cetera. I think this is going to be such a fruitful conversation and I'm really excited to learn a lot. So let's start by talking about the sitter. Jewish people have been talking to God for centuries, but when did the sitter come to be and how did it come to be? Okay, so I'm honored that I've been asked to speak about this topic. In broad strokes, what I can say is that we know that tefillah was always part of our relationship with Hashem. And in the Torah, we see so many examples of spontaneous tefillah with the Avod, just with There's many examples of people davening historically. Presumably, they were not opening up a book, not just presumably. The Ramadan tells us that really tefillah was very, very spontaneous. And often the Makor that speak about tefillah, I know you mentioned the Sidur, the primary sources that we have about the speak less say and more about when they say tefillah, they generally mean Shmona Esrei. But the Rambam speaks about a shift from people in the beginning of Hilchot tefillah, people being really spontaneous about just it being so clear to them that having a relationship with Hashem was part of their lives and that they're like, who could survive without that? And this shift from people just knowing, of course, I'm going to talk to Hashem during the day to this place where they kind of lost that ability. Gemara does speak about when Anshayik Neset Hagidullah, in the time of Ezra with Baichini, that they codified Shmona Esrei. And they were the ones who were talking the Shmona Esrei Brachot and then the 19th one that, that was at, uh, put together by Shmola Katan. And when the Rambam describes this in the beginning of Hilchot Tefillah, he was basically, once people were exiled, their ability to speak fluently in one language and just get a clear thought across to God just became compromised just because of the tension of exile or just whatever was going on in their lives. But once people just it, it eluded that ability to talk God spontaneously. So then there was this sentiment of, okay, we really do need to have something more structured. We need to give people a specific language for when they can't come up with the words themselves. Okay, nice. So let me ask you, what is the halachic significance of the sitter now? Because if someone feels that they could just talk to Hashem in that spontaneous way that you're describing, what role would the sitter play in their life? Okay, so great question. I mean, first of all, when we think about the sitter beyond the narrow 
part of Shimona Esrei. We know that there's all of this build up with, well, there are a bunch of parts of Tefillah that end up being in Shimona Esrei, and many of them have different forms of halachic significance. There's Berkvot HaTorah, which before people learn any Torah, they should be acknowledging the blessing it is to be able to learn Torah and davening for learning Torah to be sweet. And there's the Berkvot HaShachar, where we really go through, thank God for the things we would otherwise normally take for granted. Those mm. of us who are blessed to be able to stand on our own two feet and have clothing to wear, etc. Shema is also a halachically significant part of tefillah, where we recognize Hashem's omniscience and omnipotence, that Hashem is all-knowing and all-powerful. Um, and the Shimon Esri, of course, is when we say tefillah and a chiv tefillah, that's really what we're talking about. Now, if someone wants to be totally spontaneous, so in terms of halacha, first of all, there's for sure always a spontaneous conversation with God. I think it's really fundamentally tefillah and as much as I always find tefillah an interesting thing to teach about because it, it's part of my women and mitzvot curriculum when I'm teaching a course mm. about, and on the one hand, there are these technical things of, okay, how am I going to be chayav? But fundamentally, the whole point of tefillah is relationship with Hashem and recognizing that yeah. we're here in this world to serve Hashem and without a line of communication, how are we supposed to go about doing that? And it's interesting because even the Rambam, and as much as he codifies like the how-tos about tefillah in his subject line in the beginning of Hilchot tefillah, he's like, okay, the mitzvah of tefillah is Avodah Hashem, really serving Hashem. So spontaneous calling mm. out to Hashem is so clearly part of that. Seeing an ambulance behind me on the road, as far as I'm concerned, is a reason to say Shirmalo. And whether I'm going to be using words for Tehill or just, you know, when my kids are melting down, be like, Hashem, please help me stay calm and be Machanich, my children, in a way that is going to be wholesome. All of those places of spontaneous fila clearly have their place. The question is, is there also a place that says like, okay, even if I feel super grounded in my relationship with callings out in the most authentic way, is there a place for actually opening up the sitter? And there are really, from a halachic perspective, and I'm certainly not a halachic decisor, but from what it says in the Makorot, there is this notion of, I mean, we can get more into the technicalities of it. It says in the mission that women are chayv and fila, and like how to fulfill that chayv, according to the Rambam, as long as it's a daily sentiment of shavach bakasha da'al, praise God, asking God for something and saying one sentence in any language, like, Hashem, almighty master of the universe, please help me get my kids out of the house this morning without any sounds. <laughs> Thank you so much right. for my beautiful family. That line for the Rambam, Kansas Tefillah, and Sfarden Paskin that way for women, meaning, yeah, if a Sephardic woman doesn't want to pick up a sitter and just wants to say that, that totally works according to Rambam. I would have to say, parenthetically, that being said, that Rav Avadi Yosef, who was like major Sephardi way a few years ago, really said that in a time that women are literate in Hebrew, though since Anshik Nesad Agadol are the ones who put together the Shemona Esrei, it's really jam-packed. Just like so much important content, in Rav Avadi's words, there's like, so don't nichlaim. There are levels there of depth that we lay people don't really understand. I've also, Rav Yoshua Weisberg, I taught as part of his faculty at a seminary when he would speak about tefillah and Shemona Esrei, he would call it an education of the self. It's like, oh, I might be so mm. caught up in the, the minutia of my own personal life. And it's important to talk to God about that. But what about all the people who, what about asking God for justice and for rain? And like, if I live somewhere where nice. my supermarket has every single fruit and vegetable all right. year, because it's imported, yeah. then how am I going to remember to daven for rain? So the people growing the vegetables are going to 
not down the block, like in the field a few hours away. And how will I remember to daven for their rain? You know, things like that. So there's for sure value even for Sephardic women to say Shmonas, right? For Ashkenazi women, it seems that the codification, I mean, the whole backstory, I think, is an interesting one. But like bottom line of it would be that for Ashkenazim, the poskening there is that really place of Avon Shachris, for, at least for women, that Shachris and Mincha at the right times from the sitter does have significance slash would be a chiv, unless they're extenuating circumstances. And that's irrespective of the spontaneous piece, because once things have been codified as halacha, and that's how their expression has been. So if it's in the Shulchan Aruch or like in the in Nachron, after the Shulchan Aruch, we do consider that binding, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like the most personally relevant way of connecting. I actually love how you expressed that because you showed how even if you feel so grounded in your spontaneous conversation with Hashem, the words of the sitter take you out of yourself a little bit, not only to daven for other people, but even as you said, to be grateful for things that you might not even consider to be grateful for because they seem obvious to you or we take it for granted. There's so much value to speaking to Hashem about the nitty gritty details of our lives, but then to be able to zoom out a little bit and thank him for other things that we wouldn't think to or ask him for things we wouldn't think of. I think that's a really beautiful explanation of what the sitter provides outside of just the halachic obligation, but even just what it gives us when we do open it to read and daven to Hashem. But that does bring me to this next question. You mentioned that according to Ashkenazi halachic rulings, a woman is obligated to daven. So besides her when she's in extenuating circumstances. So a lot of women, definitely I myself, was under the impression that when pregnant and not feeling well or having small children, then this mitzvah of davening in a sitter doesn't necessarily apply to you. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. When is a woman exempt halachically from davening from a sitter and why or why not? So again, I certainly want to seek to really consult with someone who they feel is a halachic authority about their own personal situation. But in broad strokes, just different perspectives on this, an extenuating circumstance would be basically, I mean, there is a halachic principle of osik b'mitzvah, parmana mitzvah, which is obviously a broader halachic concept. But if somebody's involved in one mitzvah, then they're not necessarily chayv in another one. The woman is involved in the very important act of caring for children, which is so important. Like the notion of nurturing the neshamas of the next generation and doing that from a place of just being a healthy, wholesome person and educating our children healthfully and to our values. That's something that, that is really all consuming. And I think that for that reason, they're certainly, and historically, there's certainly precedent that women, certainly during their childbearing years, didn't necessarily have in in the formal sense, because if they're the, the halakha concept is true, they're really just preoccupied, uh, preoccupied here with doing the important mitzvah of raising their children. So then technically they'd be passer. So for women who really do, wow, like I can't see many balls to juggle and I want to be fully present able to for my kids and the stress of needing to take out a sitter make time for davening is too much. There's certainly precedent for saying that women wouldn't have to be doing that. That being said, I think there's a very strong additional current within our Masora of women's ikker. Like if our ikker tafke main job is if we're blessed to be children, to be raising them to our values of Yiddishkeit and to be menches. And then 
more than ever, we would need that dialogue with Hashem. And yes, for some people that comes very spontaneously, but for other people, that place of, I have my time and I have the words. And even if I'm like so overwhelmed right now because of like the craziness that went on my house this morning, there's comfort in the familiarity. And this is just the space and time that I'm going to carve out. And if I do want to be spontaneous in my conversation with God, so like at the end of the Shemona Esrei, either in Shema Kuleinu or before the Yuratzon at the end, people could just say whatever they want to Hashem. So it's just like one hand, women might be the most putter when they're busy raising little people. They might also feel like the strongest need and responsibility to be asking Hashem for that siyata deshmaya in the huge task of what it is to be raising little people. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that it is so compelling when you start to think about what an opportunity tefillah is every single day to open up the sitter and speak to Hashem in this structured way and how much of a gift it could be in your life. So I think that could be compelling to a woman, even if she's halakhically not obligated, but maybe she just wants to, and that desire is pulling her to the sitter. So I think learning a little bit more about the sitter, the backstory of significant tefillahs, I know you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but I'd love to take a little bit more of a deep dive into the significance of some of the tefillahs and the order of the sitter so that the sitter doesn't feel a dry obligation, but actually feels meaningful for people. So can we do that a bit with the sitter? Give us some backstory, some juice about what the sitter means and how its development is meaningful. Sure. First, I would just put in a plug for like cultivating a meaningful relationship with Hashem through tefillah when people have the time to do that. And if people are not busy with young children, um, it's an investment that I feel really continues to pay off. If we've had times in our lives that we really have invested in our tefillah and we have found meaning in tefillah for ourselves at certain part times in our life, then the relationship is there. We can jump right back into that, even if sometimes it doesn't feel the same. And I think sometimes something that people get stuck with when they're at the point in their lives when they do have young kids is like, wow, well, when I was in seminary, I used to have like 20 minute Shimona Esther's on like a daily basis. And I would sit there for 45 minutes saying my Mm -hmm. davening every day. And now I don't have the time to do that. And even if I'd made the time to do that, I'd be resentful because like, all I really want to do is take a shower. I can't be cross Hashem about Horban Habayit right now because my Bayit feels kind of falling apart, right? So, <laughs> so in those types of spaces, A, I think people knowing that they've had a relationship with Hashem, like Hashem relationship things were calmer, then even if they're going to take just a few minutes to kind of check in, as it were, then that's still so meaningful. And people know, okay, there are going to be those times, whether it's one random day, someone took a morning off, or whole periods of life where things will be calmer, but investing in that relationship when people can just has such payoff later. And I would say letting go of that expectation, just because I used to have davening, I defined as being a real davening, doesn't mean that I shouldn't pick up the sitter. We can't be so all or nothing about it. I mean, we can be, but I'm not sure that that's going to help serve our relationship with Hashem. So I'm happy to speak about like, different parts <laughs> of the sitter that people might be able to connect to. Yeah. But if people don't feel like they're in a zone in life connecting with a specific feeling, I feel that's okay because part of our relationship with Hashem is fulfilling our halakhic obligations. 
And what's so complicated about Tefila and fascinating about Tefila is that there is an emotional piece as well. And sometimes we're fortunate that they really line up and sometimes they don't line up so much and that's okay. So that's just as a footnote before I get into specific things in the setter. I just want to say that I, I love that you pinpointed that because I think it's very helpful to minimize the guilt that someone could feel when they do daven. They're like, well, the whole point of davening is feeling something and connecting to Hashem in a way that feels emotional. So if I'm not feeling that connection, then am I even accomplishing anything? And what you're saying is, yes, you are. If you have a halachic obligation to tefillah, then even just davening from a sitter when you don't feel like so excited about it is still meaningful. And I think that's helpful when you're not feeling so inspired and you feel a little guilty that you're going through the motions, even though hopefully we don't have to do that on a consistent basis because I don't think it's so sustainable as humans, but it is helpful for those days when we are having trouble to feel it. Yeah, for sure. And I think especially if people keep spontaneous tefillah as part of their repertoire and just get themselves used to being okay. And I think it's also if people do have young children around, I think it's good for my kids. And I'm like, my kids will sometimes remind me, they're like, Ema, it's an ambulance. Don't you usually say to hello? I'm like, yeah. You know, so that place of just spontaneous tefillah on the radar, which I mean, I think for certain people feels more natural some of the time. I think and sometimes alleviate a little bit that feeling of like, wait, but where am I connecting to Hashem if not through my formalized fila? And in general, I think that for people who do have that luxury of having like a real richness of understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and wanting things to be coming from like an inspired and deep and connected place, as you said, it does leave a lot of room for guilt when we're not holding there. And I really think we need to remind ourselves part of our Avodah Hashem really is and doing the mitzvot, even if we're not fully checked in, in ways that we have in the past, like, okay, Hashem knows where we're holding right now and that's okay. And we just do what's right for us to do in that moment. And that counts. Yeah. If, if it's davening, it counts and that's meaningful. Yeah, it does. It definitely counts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about the sitter. In terms of the sitters, also people at a time, they might be saying less, but I'm not going to go through every single part. First of all, before anyone even opens the sitter, I think Mozani is something people say right when they wake up. Mozani does appear in the sitter, but I think people traditionally say it as soon as they open their eyes in the morning. Maybe different people have different customs. But really just that place of gratitude of, wow, I'm alive, I'm breathing, Hashem gave me back my neshama after the night, is really that place of stopping for a second and not taking the most simple, but essentially really the most basic things for granted is such a, I think, a meaningful way to start the day off on, on the right foot. And as much as I'm certainly not a mental health professional, I've certainly heard and read a bunch about how gratitude practices connect so significantly to simcha and that place of a person being able to go through their life with a sense of happiness and health and well-being is so connected to our ability to serve Hashem as best we can. And we also just know from the formulation in the Torah that we're supposed to be serving Hashem b'simcha. And one of the ways of achieving that is that even when we're going through difficult things as individuals or as a nation, a place of just being grateful for what we have, I think is a really powerful and significant tool. When I wake up in the morning and I say Mozani, like I take advantage of that opportunity to also just sit up and just take a few mindful breaths and just being aware of the blessing of the ability to breathe and using the breath to keep me grounded in the current moment, as opposed to going back to that place of what are all the things I didn't get done yesterday and what are all the things I need to do today instead of being in the past and in the future to just be like in the here and now. I like that opening up your day with gratitude, communicating with Hashem. We've been talking so much about the spontaneous conversation with Hashem. This is 
the first entrance. I mean, it's not fully spontaneous, but it's the first entrance into ongoing conversation because it's right when we wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in general, it's interesting because that whole tension of structure and spontaneity is something that I think we feel very much tangibly in terms of our relationship with it. And it's so reflected in all of the earliest Makoro. This was also something that I really first heard articulated by Ravi Yeshua Weisberg. Like if you look Parak in the Gemara that speaks about Tefillah as the fourth parak. I mean, it's other places also, but the fourth parak of Musach Abracho speaks about Tefillah a lot. It's fascinating to read it with that perspective of keeping eyes open for the places of structure and the places for spontaneity. Even the basic machloket, I get this idea of three tefillot a day from. Like, does it come from the Avot, where the Avot, that was so spontaneous. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the sources they bring for when they davened, was in this primal place of just, oh, this is when I need to be talking to Hashem, right? And in contrast to that, the notion of tefillah being parallel to the different korbanot that we brought, where korbanot was so structured, like the tamid shalboker, the tamid shalban harabayim, tamid in the sense of always, constant, day in and day out. And when the Gemara ends up sources for both of those as informing tefillah, distinctly, it really is a combination of both. So we get that tonight from the Avon and we have the structure from the Korbanot. And even within the structured parts of our tefillah, like you're saying, in terms of Moda'ani, like yet in the sitter, but there's something about that that can feel so spontaneous and personal on any given day. So yeah, I like those spaces where structure and spontaneity seem to come together as opposed to being at odds with each other. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good way of saying it. Structure and spontaneity come together. And those are the moments of tefillah that feel so intuitive and also feel like more than just talking from the heart. They feel like really powerful. I'd love if we could talk about the actual physical space that we daven in. And by your estimation, do you think the space you daven in affects the way that you're able to connect to the sitter? Sometimes people don't have so much latitude in terms of when or where they daven. There's a specific space that they can do it in only a specific time. And it might be on the bus and it might be on the subway and it might be in their kitchen (laughs) or whatever. People don't necessarily have the space, but I know that for me, anytime I do have the opportunity to dive in at a time and or space that just is a more inspiring something that I find helpful. And for some people, that just might mean taking a few minutes to clean up their physical space beforehand. So they actually feel a sense of space and for talking to God. 
I know for myself, certainly this time of year when the sunrise is pretty late, I love when I can wake up and uh, like, I'm also blessed to be able to see the sunrise from my window. And I get that. I mean, on the one hand, it's also, the Gemara speaks about this reason, Makdimim, just like Avraham, like got up early in the morning to do what Hashem told him to do, that place of excitement of like, okay, the earliest Gavin is with sunrise, so I'm going to do it first. But to me, it's also this sense of awe. Every morning for anyone who has the opportunity to see the sun come up, I feel like the sky is Hashem's canvas when every morning it's just different clouds, different ways that the light refracts off of the clouds. So again, totally a luxury that I feel blessed to be able to experience myself. But even if it's not part of someone's daily routine, I think that having those occasional times of, okay, I'm going to carve out the time and space to be able to be somewhere where I can feel my tefillah more, even if that's not part of my daily existence, I think is something that can become hardwired as a resource for the future. I know that sometimes not even necessarily connected to tefillah, but even just my opportunities to encounter Hashem's world, which I feel like Suke de Zimra is so talking about, just nature and all of that, I feel like is really, for me, a way of feeling Hashem's presence in my life. And I know that sometimes for myself, times that I am blessed to take a vacation or something like that, I like just picking up things that are legal to collect from the environment, like acorns, there's this run that I love in the southern part of Israel called Marotza Kalaniyot, those flowers, the Kalaniyot, I think they're called anemones in English. And it's just this gorgeous run. And yeah, it's one of the highlights of my year. And just the colors and the scents are just so palpable. And there was this tree that had these very cool acorns. And I just took a handful of them and put them on a cute little dish from a ceramicist in spot who I really appreciate his work. And the dish actually also, Daniel Flattower is this person who makes amazing ceramics. And he made a glaze out of Afar Ve'efer. It was like dust and ashes. And just that reminder of, oh, to me, it's just a meaningful little dish. And I put in those little acorns and it's on my windowsill. And there are certainly times in my life that things feel very, very intense. And just looking at that and being like, oh, calm. That's something mm. that my body has felt. Inspiration. That's something yeah. that my body has felt. Oof. And sometimes just picking up those things and having them nearby to me is something that I think is a useful tool. I find to be a useful tool for getting through the days. So I think for Tvila also for people to find things like that, whether it's an actual visual or tangible reminder or something else can be very, very powerful. That's Rishma. Great. Okay. So Shema has its like different paragraphs. And ultimately, I think the main mitzvah of Shema is to recognize Hashem's omniscience and omnipotence. That Hashem is all-knowing, all-powerful. And that Pasuk of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, that's really what we're focusing on there. And then there are the three separate paragraphs. And I'm sure for different people, different parts of it can be meaningful in different ways. I don't necessarily have things about Shema to share from my learning in the Gemara, but just from other learning and life experiences. I mean, the first paragraph of Shmav, like the Ahapta, other than just the reading at face value, things that come up for me is that that part has quotes in it that are significant in terms of the whole premise of Tefillah, the Midrash is then quoted in the Rambam in terms of the source that Tefillah is actually a mitzvah. It's a machloket of Tefillah. If daily Tefillah is a mitzvah, the Rambam thought that it was based on the Sifri, which is a Midrash 
halacha that says that that pasuk that we say in Shema, you know, serving Hashem with all your heart, that serving Hashem with all your heart is tefillah. And that's why the Ramam says that it's not even a time-bound mitzvah. It's just this daily obligation to serve Hashem with all your heart, which is why the way the Shulchan Aruch codifies women as being chayv and tefillah, they just say, well, it's not a mitzvah to say shazman grama, like it's not even time-bound. And there is this premise also from the Mishnah in Kedushin that women are exempt from time-bound mitzvot. But we also know, as I mentioned earlier, that women are chayv and tefillah, but the notion of the exemption from time-bound mitzvot for the Rambam doesn't even apply to tefillah because of that pasuk and shema of ulov zobacholav avchem. The Ramban happens to disagree, and he doesn't think that daily tefillah is a doraita, a biblical commandment. He thinks it's a rabbinic commandment. But then when the rabbis did institute daily tefillah, even though they instituted it in a very time-bound way and by certain times, they instituted it for women as well. Because as the Gemara puts it, Rachamin in who like it's a calling out to Hashem for Rachamim. You know, as I was saying earlier, if we're here in this world to serve Hashem, we need a lifeline. Like we need to be able to communicate. It's a basic human need, irrespective of gender. But that is something that does emerge from that first paragraph of Shema is this notion of and just a reminder of, oh yeah, this whole davening thing, and as much as it's technical, the point of it is this serving Hashem from the heart. So that's just something about the first paragraph. The second paragraph became really meaningful for me when I was learning in Israel in the year after high school. Rabbi Menachem Liebtag was one of my teachers, and he spoke about the second paragraph of Shema comes from Parshat Ekev, and what goes on there in the Sukkim well, the psukim that we're saying in Shema is that basically, if we keep Hashem's Torah, Hashem's going to make it rain. And if we don't keep Hashem's Torah, then it's not going to rain. And those psukim appear in the Torah in Parshat Ekev right after the psukim that where Hashem is explaining to Moshe, to Bnei Israel, that that Hashem is taking them out of Mitzrayim and He's bringing them to a new land that's very different. And then in Mitzrayim, everything comes naturally. Basically, it says, basically, it says a little cryptic, like you can water with your feet. Basically, because the Nile River was so present and impacted the land around so much and was always there. It's kind of like going to the beach where when you dig down a little bit, like you right away hit water. Like when you dig down in the sand, so so too people could just kind of like kick into the ground in Mitzrayim and water would just come up. They never had to worry about whether they'd have crops or not because there was always rainwater. And Hashem says, when I'm bringing you to Israel, there are mountains and valleys, you'll have water based on whether or not it rains. And Rabbi Levtag happens to be particularly Zionist and Aliyah oriented. And he had his Aliyah spin of like, well, what would people really prefer? Would you prefer the economic security of everything always being available? Or would you rather be dependent on God? And putting aside any Zionist narratives, because everyone really has their own perspectives about those types of things. I think it's very clear just from the Torah that Eretz Yisrael is the land that Hashem brought Bnei Yisrael to. And Hashem is saying, this is a place where I'm communicating with you. There's none of this. And in as much as there's something that might feel scary or threatening about that of, oh, you know, and that's what we're saying in Shema, like if we're not doing the mitzvah, it's not going to rain. And that's actually consequential because if it doesn't rain, we actually don't get the type of produce that we would have otherwise. And you know, when we made Aliyah from New York, where I walk into Fairway or whatever other store, there's every type of tomato, yeah. every type of everything, every single season. Then we got to Israel and it's like, oh, strawberries don't show up on the shelves until January. And it's, oh, fruits are seasonal. I forgot about that. Yeah. And we, we are, we're blessed to get our vegetables from an organic farm. And one of the first weeks, like they send vegetables with a cute little newsletter in the box. 
they don't send it by email. It's actually printed out. The goings on in the farm on one side, so cute. recipes with the star vegetable of the box on the other side. And one of our first weeks, the farmer Boaz wrote, he's like, and for those of you who are going to be going to shul tonight, this is when people start davening for rain. And you better daven like you mean it, because otherwise your radishes are going to be really bitter. Because <laughs> basically, if it doesn't rain a lot, your radishes are bitter. For me, I mean, and obviously everyone is going to be living in the world where they're going to be serving Hashem best and doing their personal shlichus. And thank God, there's a lot of people in a lot of places. I feel personally very blessed to be here. But I feel like whether someone's here or not, I think people can appreciate that. That when they say Shman, it's like, oh, Israel is where there's a certain direct connection with Hashem, where Hashem really communicates with us through that reign of whether we're doing what we're doing or not. And I always feel such guilt. The weather here has been objectively what people would call beautiful, like warm and sunny here in the middle of like the end of January. And I always feel on the one hand, wait, can I enjoy this weather? Or should I be remembering that Hashem's not answering my tefillot for rain? And when I don't actually have shoes that are waterproof, it's like, do I really mean it when I'm davening for rain? So really just that sense in that second paragraph of Shema of, oh, direct communication where Hashem's giving us feedback. I see as really being such a gift and an opportunity and something that I appreciate when I say that second paragraph of Shema. Nice. Times that I'm blessed to be paying attention for that one. That's really good. And then in the third paragraph, it's a very different vibe. It's like a Yitziat Mitzrayim type of vibe that also speaks about Geula. And we have this notion also that the Gemara speaks about of being Somech Geula Litfila, going into our Shemona Esri from a place of really talking about Geula. And it's interesting. A lot of my very formative Torah experiences, I guess, were from that time when I had the opportunity to be like total immersion. But Rabbi Danish Ginsburg, who was my mechanic somewhere else where I was studying, he pointed out, it was a class about Ramban a la Torah, and he pointed out that the last Ramban in Parsha Bo, the Ramban speaks about miracles. And like the Rambam and the Ramban, I think, had different perspectives about Ashkacha Pratis and miracles in general and nature and all of that. But the Ramban really speaks about how, like, why is it that Yitzhak Mitzrayim is something that's so central? We talk about it all the time. We talk about it in Kiddush, and here we're talking about it in Shema every single day. And what the Ramban says that Yitzhak Mitzrayim was a time that Hashem did really blatant miracles. No one who was around during the Mako, during Kriyat Yamsuf, could ever say, oh, there's no God in the world. And the Ramban says, throughout the generations, there are always going to be people who question God's existence. But Hashem is not just going to come out and start doing blatant nisim gluyim, blatant miracles that go against nature every time somebody doubts God's existence. So we have this paradigm of just going back and keeping alive in our Masora and our tradition. That same Hashem who did those blatant miracles is the God that does like all of our existence is miraculous. And those may have been blatant miracles, but essentially the difference between a blatant miracle and what we call a nascent star, like a hidden miracle, is really just the question of whether we're sensitized to something or desensitized to it. And there's a story in the Gemara where Rabbi Hanina Bendosa sent, I'm pretty sure it was his daughter, to go buy oil for the Shabbos candles. And she came back and turns out she had bought vinegar and she was so shaken up. She's like, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to light candles. I bought vinegar and not oil. And Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was very chill. And he's like, Misha the same God that makes oil combustible can make the vinegar burn as well. And <laughs> apparently they lit the vinegar and it was totally fine. And it's like, oh yeah, we know how to explain the combustibility of oil. I like to understand why it is that oil burns, but that still is miraculous. So for me, that last paragraph of Shema is just 
recognizing the miracles of things in daily life and just not taking that for granted. And I mean, earlier in the Birchot Kriyachma, one of the things we say is that God renews, like in God's goodness every day, or whatever God had originally created. And it's this constant sense of renewal that everything is really miraculous. And along with that, if every moment God is recreating and everything is always new and everything is really very much in God's hands. And as I mentioned, not all of the Rishonim had this perspective. It's one that I personally very much appreciate. But that also is just, I mean, A, a tremendous source of gratitude of, wow, and this minute again, I'm here alive breathing. And also the sense of, okay, everything can start over. I think that's also a message to me very much of healing, even in a physical sense of rejuvenation. I heard a doctor speaking once about how many cells in our body are renewed over the course of the year. Our body is constantly building itself out of whatever fuel we're putting into it. And this place of, okay, regeneration, renewal, everything is miraculous. Everything is in Hashem's hands. And the gratitude for that and the sense of hope and possibility from that, to me, very much emerges from that reminder of like, yes, Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, Hashem did wild and crazy miracles, and every moment of our existence is part of like the continued wild and crazy miracles from Asabrashid and from Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Nice. And as you mentioned, the wild and crazy miracles of the nature and just the world all around us that we don't necessarily recognize as miraculous. Like you said, oil burning is miraculous too. Yeah. Yeah. One of my students over Hanukkah, I love having students during Hanukkah, and I say, I'll provide the food for the body, you provide the food for the soul, and they all bring different Hanukkah different Torah. And mm. one of my students this year was pointing out that oil comes from olives, which grow from the ground, and you plant a seed, and then it's basically nurtured from dirt, water, and air. And that turns into oil. Like That's really pretty wild, even if mm. you just stop to think about it that way. I feel like looking even just another organic vegetable thing. It's those things that are different than usual that you realize, oh, I take things for granted. This week, my beets came shaped like carrots. Instead of being round, they were kind of long, which was a lot of fun because I was able to cut them into cute little even slices and it was just a fun, cute and shape. But it's like, oh, and when the kohlrabi is come purple instead of light green, it's just the little deviations are, oh, I'm just so desensitized to nature, but it's really all so beautiful and just cutting open a vegetable, looking at a flower, the mandala, the symmetry. Hashem clearly chose to make the world that we live in one that's jam-packed with tiny details. And I feel for us to stop and recognize and appreciate those details. And again, like I don't know what it means that something is meaningful to Hashem or isn't meaningful to Hashem, but it's certainly meaningful for me to stop and just notice, to notice those details. I remember once, I think it was in the book, Maybe it was the book by Faber and Mazelish, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, where they speak about praising and using descriptive praise instead of, or maybe there's an article by Alfie Cohen who was speaking about why not to just say great job to kids. And he quoted some research where they took two groups of kids and had them draw pictures and they told one group, great job. And they told the other group, I love how you use such vibrant colors. They gave very descriptive praise. And then they gave both groups like the opportunity to color again. And the group that had been told good job or great job didn't want to color again because they didn't actually know what they did was or wasn't good. And they didn't want to mess up the next time and not get that lot of, oh, great job. But the group that was given specific praise was totally motivated because they knew what they did that was meaningful and they totally wanted to do more. And maybe it was then in favor and Mazelish that they were saying, if you're going to be praising your kids, 
you want to give them specific praise, not just because it's also motivating for continued investment, but also because it's far more meaningful. Like we lived for a while in, well, it doesn't matter where we were living, but I just noticed the difference between if a Shabbos guest says, oh, it's great soup. It's so different than, oh, is that ginger that I taste? Yeah. And it's like, oh, you actually noticed, you know? So I feel like whatever it means to Hashem, I can't know. If I stop it, I notice those things, but I'm blown away by the detail that Hashem put into the world. And I love stopping to notice. And it is something that does fuel my personal relationship with Hashem. And yeah, I do think it's all just like wildly miraculous. I really love that the story, like the thread that I'm seeing throughout everything that you're sharing is that Tefillah teaches us how to do that, how to notice the details of our lives and how their source is within Hashem. Everything, like all of our desires, every detail of the world to be able to stop and notice and recognize that it's Hashem because it's not something we can always do spontaneously. Sometimes we need to slow down and have someone guide us through words that help us stop and notice and that train us then to be able to go out into the world and recognize Hashem more often and more deeply and more in the details because we've had this opportunity in the morning to tune into it. Yeah, for sure. And two things that I just think about when you say that. One is that, especially at times that people don't necessarily find their structured fila something they can invest in so much, if they set themselves up into that mindset of seeing Hashem everywhere, then they can continue having that more of that spontaneous relationship with Hashem throughout the day. I'm also thinking about how it's very much a cyclical relationship. We stop and pay attention to the words of davening, and that makes us open our eyes to the wonders of the world. And then when we come back to daven again, with that perspective of being fueled from the inspiration, from the way that Hashem made the world, it makes us daven in a way that's more meaningful and significant. Join us next week, Sunday morning, for part two of this fabulous conversation with Adi, which left me on such a high and a renewed desire to really connect to the sitter and utilize it in my connection with Hashem. You know how they say like we could have gone on for hours? Well, Adi and I actually did. Our conversation ended up being way too long for a single episode, so we elected to divide this into a two-part conversation. Next week, we're going to talk about Shmona Esrei, Adi's personal journey to Tvila, and also just get real about actually getting into the sitter. If you aren't really accustomed to davening from the sitter, how can you make it more appealing, more inviting, more enjoyable? If you already do and it's a little stale, how can you enjoy it more? And what are little tips that Adi has for making the experience of davening from a sitter something that feels uplifting and that is something that we turn to consistently because we want to, not just because we have to. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha mechaberet nishmati tamidelecha mechaber mechaber. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and if you did, you know what to do. 
take one quick second to leave a rating or a review. It means a lot to Human and Holy. It helps other people find the podcast. It's so good and it takes a second. So if you like this episode, if you love Human and Holy, take a quick second, leave a rating, leave a review. I would be so appreciative. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, alongside this series on Tefillah, we are also launching a resource center with four gorgeous shoppable items in our tefillah collection that will help you take the ideas that we are discussing here and implement them into your life. These items are things that you can really use in your life to begin your own personal relationship with tefillah. So mark your calendars, save the date, February 25th. The Resource Center launches on humanandholy.com. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast or support Human and Holy in any way, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor to give in any amount. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.